The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. What if newspapers like the New York Times had existed in 1860? Wait, the New York Times did exist in 1860. But what if it had not just paper transmission, but electronic media, blogs in particular, and the ability not only to publish articles, but to immediately solicit a wide range of commentary from other journalists, experts, and the public themselves. One way we might get some idea of that is by reading the series Disunion in the New York Times since 2010 and following the 150-year anniversary of events leading up to the secession of the South, the firing on Fort Sumter, and continuing now in 2011 into the Civil War. We'll talk today with the chief opinionator of the Disunion blog, Jamie Malinowski, on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you on a beautiful spring afternoon in 2011, April 15th, the anniversary of the death of Abraham Lincoln, uh, but also the anniversary week, 150th anniversary week of the attack on Fort Sumter in the beginning of the Civil War, which we'll talk about today. Uh, But we'll talk about it uh, uh, as individuals, even though I'm broadcasting from East Carolina University uh, in Greenville, North Carolina, in my spacious and well-appointed office on the third floor of the Brewster Building. Uh, Even so, not speaking for the university or the University of North Carolina system, the Board of Trustees, the General Administration, the State of North Carolina, etc. And likewise, my guest will speak only for himself. I'm certain of that. Well, a few minutes ago, I was thinking uh, the most interesting thing that had happened Well, many interesting things happen today. Teaching classes is always interesting, but I, uh, having a a busy schedule on Friday, I 
for whatever reason, didn't have time to prepare my lunch and indulged in calling across the street to Mike's Deli, uh, where I go once in a while, and went over to pick up my sandwich from uh, from Terry, the owner, and he said, oh, no, they gave the wrong sandwich to someone else, and they did not have my sandwich. They were about to make a new one, and I said, well, I'll just take the other guy's sandwich, and so I got a random sandwich for lunch today. It was roast beef instead of turkey, and at one point, I'm thinking, well, that's the most interesting and exciting thing of the day, which would be a good day, and then I'm sorry to say, five minutes before the show begins, the uh, associate dean for for planning, for not for planning, for finance, uh, does this as he tends to do on Friday afternoons. I assume it's his work schedule. It's not intended to ruin the weekend, but it has that effect. Um, just sent out the memo to department heads as to what will happen if the uh, proposed legislative budget uh, goes through, if there is, in fact, a cut of uh, 20%, uh, if a cut of 10% were to come down to the academic uh, departments, and a cut of 10% may not sound like much, but academic departments have all their budget and payroll. We, we pay professors and we buy paper clips, and we can only cut the paper clips so far. 10% means I would have to fire a lot of people, and I'm sitting here still kind of trembling inside, having looked at the spreadsheet and thinking, this, this can't, this, this would be the... Uh, it, it would be traumatic, uh, to say the least, to the history department, to the students. And this must be replicated at all the campuses of the University of North Carolina system. And it's happening in other states and other state university systems. It is uh, a, a bloodbath in higher education these days. And I, I don't want to go on about it to you, the helpless and uh, uh, willing listeners of Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, when we say bloodbath in this show, we mean uh, a literal one usually, and, and I shouldn't use that metaphor lightly here. Um, but we are talking about people's careers, at least, if not their actual lives, and it is uh, a frightening thought uh, that, that the cuts could be as deep as they are being proposed. Uh, well, if it hadn't crossed my desk a mere five minutes before showtime, I might have had time to regain my composure and not talk about it with you. So I'll back off from that and move on to happier stories. Uh, several people have written asking, what's up with the Greenville Stars? Uh, why don't we hear about uh, uh, girls U12 soccer? We're all interested around the world, and I know you are. Uh, but as I've explained, uh, my girls are growing up. And so instead, we'll hear today about the J.H. Rose High School Junior Varsity Girls Soccer Team beating the team from Laney High School in Wilmington, North Carolina, 5-1 to one on Monday, and tying with Ashley uh, High School, also from Wilmington, yesterday, 1-1. to one. This is big news because we up here in, in Little Greenville uh, have to travel two and a half hours to get to Wilmington. We've, we've been cursed with this long travel schedule, and we never beat the teams in Wilmington. Their schools are much bigger and more nicely appointed and uh, it is a, a great, great moment uh, in, in girls' soccer history when, when J.A. Rose defeats a team from Wilmington. And we did, we did it twice this week. I say we, meaning my daughter uh, and her teammates did it. I just stand there and yell like a, a, a typical soccer parent, uh, watching all the girls who I formerly coached as Greenville Stars, so that I still think of them as mine, and I want to tell the coach what to do, but I bite my tongue or my wife... Uh, would cut it off if I didn't, so that's what I do. Just watch them play and cheer lustily from the sidelines. 
you will cheer to know we're done talking about soccer and moving it back to the Civil War. Uh, no show next week. It's Good Friday and a, a state holiday here, despite the separation of church and state. Uh, on the 29th of April, though, Jennifer Weber will join us to talk about Copperheads, the Northern Democrats opposed to the war. No show on May 6th. It's commencement. Uh, graduate while you can, students in the North Carolina system, before none of us are left to teach you. Uh, on, a, on May 13th, Josh Howard uh, from the State of North Carolina Department of Cultural Resources will talk about his very interesting project uh, to count the dead of the Civil War and uh, how he came by that. On the 20th, uh, Daniel Crofts will talk with us about the a secession enigma, the diary of a public man, and we might discuss that today as well. So we've got lots of good shows coming up. You can find out more always from the impedimentsofwar.org website that Mark Gaffney maintains for us. It's a, a great site and always worth looking at. And you can usually buy books from the people who uh, who we talk to on the show. Uh, go go through his link to Amazon there and get uh, he gets a, a fraction of a penny. And you can donate money to the show uh, directly through PayPal. And if you ask, I'll send you a copy of one of my books in exchange. Happy to do that. Uh, we can use the money because today I was reading the New York Times online to get ready for the show. And after clicking on a bunch of links, I suddenly was told, hey, you've reached your 20-article limit for this month, you cheapskate. You have to pay for the New York Times from now on. So I got out my credit card so I could finish preparing for the show uh, and I'm now out uh, some unspecified amount of money. I'm, it says 99 cents, but that's always a trick, so I'm expecting some giant bill one of these days uh, for my online uh, access to the Times, and uh, your contributions will help cover that, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Well, enough about that. Let us bring on our guest uh, from the New York Times, Jamie Malinowski. Uh, Mr. Malinowski, are you there? I sure am. How are you today? Good, good. Thank you for sandwich and financial uh, difficulty. Well, the the sandwich was good news. The roast beef turned out to be a welcome alternative to the the health conscious turkey that I normally have. But uh, uh, the financial news, well, I mean, newspapers are not having any picnic these days. Uh, uh, I, I know that certainly, but the uh, uh, the world of higher education is is, is just. It's uh, it's bad news. I I, I sympathize. I have two girls in college, and so I know what everyone is stacked up against. It, it is tough. My my older one is in school right now at a uh, not at one of the state schools in North Carolina, but one of those pricey elite northern schools. Well, the listeners of this show know it's uh, Joshua Chamberlain's uh, alma mater, where she's going up at uh, Bowdoin in, in, in Maine, and uh, it, it it ain't cheap. Um, Right. So uh, uh, anyway, the uh, uh, well, you have hit upon uh, in this 150th anniversary year of the Civil War, actually last year, 150th anniversary of Lincoln's election, uh, a really remarkable project, the, the Disunion blog that appears uh, in the New York Times. Did um, Let's start with your your interest in this. How uh, how did you come up with this idea, and does it reflect a long-standing interest in the war? I have been interested in the Civil War um, since I was a child, since the centennial. Uh, I was eight years old then, and uh, just um, you know, grew up in Baltimore. My parents, you know. 
took us to Gettysburg and Antietam and Harper's Ferry and Fredericksburg. Mm. And, um, you know, it was just a, an exciting uh, a period. Um, did, did you have the Marx uh, Company Blue and Gray Soldiers? Many, plus the uh, hand-painted warriors of the world. Excellent. Plus the uh, Topps uh, trading cards. Trading cards, yes. Several comic books. Saw Johnny Shiloh on Walt Disney's uh, Wonderful World of Color and landmark books, the biography of Robert E. Lee and the You Are There books of the the Mm -hmm. Battle of Gettysburg and immersed myself pretty much as deeply as I could uh, at that age. Let me just jump ahead and anticipate. Uh, do you see any of that happening with the sesquicentennial, that stuff aimed at a, a, a younger market? No, I think that I was uh, privileged, and uh, uh, those of us who are my age are privileged, that, it was, that, from that sort of, there was a sort of a sweet spot of about 10 years where pop culture and American history were very close together. I think ever since... Um, Disney uh, walked into a pot of gold with uh, David Crockett. Uh, they realized that uh, that uh, Americans were very hungry at that time for stories about American history, and so uh, there was um, not only were there all those westerns on at that time, but uh, you know John Wayne made the Battle of the Alamo, and then you reached a period in the '60s when there was a lot of um, World War II. Stuff. I mean, there had always been World War II movies, but it was a particularly rich period. I think people kind of returned to it in a big way, um, and so you had wonderful World War II movies, and uh, and then um, Marx was making all those toys um, that uh, all those play sets that boys played with, and and there really wasn't, you know, there was some science fiction and so forth, but in a way, all those um, kind of um, adventure stories that later generations played out in science fiction tales. Uh, we played out with um, historical uh, historical toys. And so yeah. it was, It was. I was pretty lucky, I think. Well, I, I, uh, I was a little younger during the centennial, but uh, but not much, and, and had much the same experience. And I found a lot of the people I talked to on the show uh, have... Remember the same thing: the, uh, the centennial history of the war, uh, with wonderful bird's eye maps of the battles uh, uh, that uh, uh, that we all looked at, and uh, right. uh, the, the figures to play with, and all those other things. So, so you've been interested for a long time, right? And um, I've, you know, I've been a writer and a journalist, but I've never been a particular. Um, I've never. I'm not a historian. Um, I've, you know, I, I, I read a lot of history, read a lot of Civil War history. Anyway, the point was, you know, um, uh, more than a year ago, it, when I realized that there was going to be a sesquicentennial, uh, I realized there was a large gap between the way we experience politics, particularly in this day and age, um, and the way people learn history. You know, people, you know, I saw my daughters learning history in, with sort of just big landmark moments. You know, Lincoln was elected and then the South seceded. Mm-hmm. You know, and they fired on Fort Sumter. Uh, and, and in fact, though, when we uh, uh, when we experience politics, it's full of small details and large uh, toings and froings and ups and downs and minor people. I mean, minor figures who weigh uh, large in the scheme of things for a week. You know, Christine O'Donnell. And, Shirley Sherrod, you know, become household names for three weeks, you know, and then sort of disappear. And 
and I just knew enough about the, the history of the six months between Lincoln's election and the Fort Sumter to know that it was an incredibly rich political period, and that uh, and that, that you know if we told the story almost on a day by day basis, um, people would respond because they most people don't have any idea of the richness of the um, drama of the events. Um, you know, it's just people kind of lose sight of the fact there was 15 southern states, 15 states with slaves, each of which had to make up their mind about whether or not they were going to secede. We had a national election with four candidates that was extremely close. You know, everyone knows Lincoln won, but nobody, very few people remember how narrow that election was and how he really had to kind of fill an inside straight in order to get the electoral college vote. Um, you know, and then there was wide disagreement everywhere. Uh, about just how do you respond to this? Do we go, you know, if you're in the South, it's, do we go along with secession? Do we try to negotiate? Do we stay with the Union up North? It's the range of opinion between whether or not we let them go or, um, or fight them or, you know, create some compromise as we've done for 30 years or 40 years. So just the, the, the detail of the argument and the range of the argument and the drama and the personalities just said, you know, this is something that, that people will enjoy reading in detail. So I'm curious about how this worked out in practice. Um, were you working for the New York Times at this time? or, or is No, I'm a, freelancer. I'm a freelance writer. I've right. worked at Time Magazine and other magazines, and um, I wrote for the Times as a freelancer for a long time. And so um, uh, one of my good friends is an editor at, at the paper there, and I said, I have an idea. Why don't I come in and talk to you about it? And uh, so I was able to go in and pitch them on the idea. Okay. So and they, they uh, I think, wisely thought uh, this would work. Now, when when it started, uh, you know, I remember reading about it uh, as it was starting, and to some extent, it's well. The, the idea, the concept, uh, seemed to be uh, that this would be as if it were happening now uh, in the present tense, uh, and as it has gone on, it it, it, it it seems there's some of that. To some extent, it's like reading it uh, as if it's happening now. We don't know what's going to happen next. Um, I, I but, try to write. I write a weekly column. My column appears for the first time, like, Sunday nights around 9 o'clock, and mm-hmm. most people see it on Monday morning. And um, and I try to write it as though I were writing a Week in Review column or a cover story in Time magazine. You know, it's about 2,000 words, and it's a kind of a wrap-up of the week's events written, you know, f- at that present moment. You know, but where it's, I, it's, it's impossible to divest yourself of, of all the knowledge of what's happened right. since. Just, just the fact that you know what is going to be significant, even if you pretend not to know that mm-hmm. things are going to have a certain outcome, you end up watching certain personalities because you know that they will uh, play crucial roles later on. So there's, there's that element of selectivity that you can't avoid. But to me, uh, the, the, the things that really interested me about the whole project were just how did people um, you know, come to the decisions they came to and how did they... Uh, reach the political, you know, how did they, you know, how did Lincoln decide what to do and when to weigh in and when not to weigh in, and Buchanan and all these others. You know, you can, it's not hard to um, play the suspense in those stories. 
and so it, you don't have to. I don't feel we labor it. And then the other fellows that write, we have many academics uh, and historians, and it, it's almost as though I'm doing a play-by-play thing, and they're doing the color commentary. And and it's, I, a, it's a good analogy. Let, let's hold on that point for a minute. We'll take a short break. We'll come back in a moment talking with Jamie Malinowski, writer of the Disunion blog for the New York Times. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop take world talk radio on the go and listen anywhere get our mobile app for iphone blackberry or android at the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market if you're looking for answers and solutions you don't have to look to expensive treatments consultations and methods all you have to do is listen to your connections Every week, the Dr. Melanie Show will teach you how to do just that. Dr. Melanie Barton will share her gifts and talents and teach you to do the same. And in doing so, find the solutions to the issues in your life that you truly need. You'll learn about holistic and practical health in six key areas. Discover the Dr. Melanie Show, Thursdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Jamie Malinowski, the chief opinionator of the Disunion blog on the New York Times. It's a series that has been presenting online the news. Uh, all the news that's fit to print of what happened 150 years ago this week uh, since November 2010, following the events of uh, the anniversary of events of Lincoln's election, the secession of South Carolina, uh, the uh, eventually the negotiations and final attack on Fort Sumter uh, this week here in April, and uh, doing so throughout, as we were discussing in our first segment. Uh, as if viewing the events uh, as they happened, writing a weekly column that uh, wraps up uh, uh, the week's events from the viewpoint of a, uh, a well-informed but not um, omniscient uh, observer, not someone writing from the 21st century, but someone writing with the perspective uh, of someone at the time. The uh, uh, Jamie, one of the interesting things about this format is that while you're writing, as you say, with with uh, you're, you're presenting a sort of narrative wrap up of what's happened, uh, you've got other people participating in the blog with with different uh, uh, frameworks. Uh, that is, you've got uh, other you've got collaborators, people who's uh, who write other columns or, or short pieces that are linked to what you're writing, uh, and these. Are, are other journalists or academics or uh, uh, people with various uh, contributions to offer, and they tend to write uh, as, as more traditionally in, in the, the past tense, writing about the past, analyzing the past. Uh, you're comparing them to the color commentator, where you're the the play-by-play right. play person. Right, uh, and I think uh, it's kind of evolved. I mean, part of it was uh, we knew uh, when we began. 
um, that I would have this role, and that there were, and the two other guys had signed on to be frequent contributors, Adam Goodhart, who's a historian and, and um, has a wonderful new book called 1861 that just came out, and Ted Wim- Widmer, who's a speechwriter, and, and uh, but we we really didn't know beyond that how many more people would want to be contributing, and and um, so we just kind of began, and uh, as one does, and. Uh, you know, and then other people people would send in pieces or say, "I want to write something," or "I've got an idea here," and it began to sort of take on its own form. So I don't think, uh, you know, um, we didn't have a whole rule book about who was going to say what, how, at the beginning. We just had a sort of idea of how we would start, and then it's evolved in its own way. I, I think it's it's been interesting to see that as it, it does evolve over time. You can see the changes. Um, you mentioned Adam Goodhart's book. Are his pieces in the, the blog uh, parts of the book? Yes, although I don't know if they're exclusively um, taken from his book. or uh, I know some of them are, um, mm-hmm. but I, I don't know whether uh, all of them are. I was looking, I was trying to find my old class records and, and not succeeding, uh, but I, I see that uh, Adam graduated from Harvard in 1992, and I was a graduate student there at that time. Long-time listeners to the show know I never miss an opportunity to remind people I have a Harvard degree, uh, <laughs> always trying to cash in on that. What, what and, school did you say you went to? Yeah, thank you. Harvard University. Uh, nice Harvard. To ask. Yes, the H. All right. Drop the big H. <laughs> the, um, and I've been trying to figure out if, if Adam Goodhart was ever a student of mine, um, if he took uh, David Donald's uh, Civil War class when I was assisting Professor Donald uh, or any of the other classes. I think he might have been the guy who uh, that one afternoon got your uh, turkey sandwich by mistake, but uh, I don't know if he took the class. It's very possible. I'll, 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 I may have it buried in a box at home. I'll, I'll go look through my old student rosters. Well, take credit for it. He's, very bright. He's a very bright guy and a gifted writer, and um, so you should take credit for uh, teaching him everything he knows. Well, I, I'm, I'm happy to do that. Um, the, the things... Well, one of the other things that's interesting about this format are the uh, reader responses. Uh, yes. And just as an in, insight, the way, way to get into that, uh, one of the things Adam Goodhart wrote was uh, a discussion, uh, a description of, of Joshua Speed meeting Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Speed, uh, Lincoln, of course, were old friends from the 1830s, and for the, to to see each other again uh, just before Lincoln uh, went to. Uh, assumed the presidency, and in that piece he he mentions uh, the fact that that Lincoln and Speed shared a bed. Uh, I've written something about that in in my own writing on Lincoln. Uh, uh, the question of Lincoln's sexuality comes up there. Some some of the readers were not happy that that was even referenced, uh, arguing that it's not relevant, and it immediately it, it points out that. Anything that gets said in your writing or that of your collaborators uh, is immediately the subject of anywhere from 30 to 80 to 150 comments that are published. Right. Uh, do, are, are those all the comments? Do you delete any of them? Uh, do you get cranks or spammers or other uh, people that have to be cleaned up? I've been. I don't handle that myself. There's an editor. Uh, at the paper, who does um, take out, um, uh, you know, over-the-top commentary? Um, apparently, they have a guidelines 
for uh, commentary so that even if you use the word like damn in your is a damn fine piece of writing, it gets cut out. Hmm. So um, they have things like that. And then I guess there are where people do, um, you know, go over the top. But uh, it, it has been astonishing, the, uh, the response. I, I, I uh, am quite overwhelmed. And, and it's not only just, you know, I don't like this or I do like this. They're lengthy and thoughtful and argumentative and, um, you know, uh, just very, very, very rich. It's been a very uh, uh, just astonishing dialogue. I, I, I was going to make the same observation that the comments are, are for the most part, thoughtful and uh, often reference other sources and, and really uh, carry on a public dialogue about these topics. And they talk to one another. Yes, yes, they, they, they interact and, and in a civil fashion for the most part, uh, you know, actually discussing issues. Now, one particularly interesting comment uh, early on, uh, you received uh, a fairly long and, and critical uh, uh, reader's comment from, from Daniel Crofts, who teaches at the College of New Jersey, and he was pointing out things that that I will confess uh, I, I I could see his points quite clearly that uh, as, as you say you're not a professional historian and many of your your collaborators are not and he made some points that uh, where a professional historian might have got things uh, different or, or or more up to date with current interpretation or, or otherwise uh, I hesitate to say better but but I'll say better mm-hmm. and. Lo and behold, a few uh, entries later, uh, you have him writing one of the the pieces where it's sort of put up or shut up. Uh, I, I'm assuming you invited him to do that. Uh, I wish I could have taken I could take credit for that. I mean, it's probably George Calderacus, our editor, who took credit for it. And I'm not even entirely I'm not even entirely sure that um, you know if if uh, the, the association was made between the commenter and. The contributor, uh, but um, yeah, I mean, I don't. Uh, uh, so it wasn't me who uh, ended up deciding whether um, this critic would get a berth, but it was fine. I mean, I, my approach about this is I do my, the best I can, and um, you know, uh, I've made some uh, mistakes, but um, you know. Uh, uh, on the whole, I'm trying to tell a story, and I'm feeling that we have um, largely delivered the goods. I, I don't feel as though we've sold an interpretation. Uh, well, I, I would say that's another advantage of the format that you have, is that where where a historical error creeps in, and, and every historian makes them, uh, in an early one, uh, there was a remark about the Republicans wanting a low tariff, and of course they wanted a high tariff. Right, I mean, that was just... Uh, it can be a you know, slip of the, the typewriter. For whatever reason, the, the, the point that stands out to me is that uh, it, it was corrected, and subsequent versions of the... Right. The column then say, you know, an early version had this corrected. Um, errata is something that appears in, in you know, uh, everyone, every published writer would love to be able to go back and 
fix the things. Um, if I were ever to have made a mistake, I'm sure I'd want to fix it too. Uh, but, but, you know, we'd all love to be able to go back and do a second edition and a third and fourth and fifth and fix things. And you have that ability. You can actually, right. uh, you know, when there's a simple mistake like that, it's easy to fix and, and do it. And it adds to the credibility of the, the finished product, it seems to me. Right. Yes. And we do, uh, wherever we, uh, you know, uh, and, it, and that, that was one of the things that has, uh, uh, it, 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 you have to work very hard. Um, I mean, as you well know, uh, the Civil War readers are, are know their material very well, and um, uh, one, one really has to be on the game. They, they do. They, uh, one of the drawbacks dealing with Civil War readers is that they many of them don't change their minds a lot. No, no, maybe that's not quite right. There are some of them who have made up their minds, and you know what they're going to say. And if I open the current copy of North and South magazine that's on my desk here, I see a letter by a familiar contributor from, from New York City, and uh, I don't I, I will read the letter, but I don't actually need to because I, I've read many of his letters in the past and I know what he's going to say, or at least I know what side of the interpretive divide he will be on. And even though I agree with it, it it's it, it's going to be the same thing. Um, no one's going to change his mind. And there are those who, who write stuff that I disagree with. No one's going to change their mind. And you get these, and, and you seem to have in your following a certain number of those commenters uh, among the public yeah, the people I really write for, though, are the people who aren't as deeply immersed in it. Uh, the most gratifying comments are from people who, when they say, I didn't know about this. Uh, uh, a couple weeks ago, we quoted at length uh, Alexander Stevens' cornerstone uh, speech. And uh, and people, again and again, the comment, I'd never heard about the speech. I didn't know anything about it. You know, this has to, this, why isn't this taught in schools? Why are people presented with this? You know, uh, uh, you know, it was a revelation to a great many people that, um, you know, that slavery was the cornerstone of the, of the government, um, and um, and that's just very gratifying when you can introduce things to people in a way that they had not, with, with a level of detail that they hadn't encountered before. If if Jim Lowen were dead today, he would be spinning in his grave to hear that. Um, uh, it, he, he recently edited or co-edited a book called The Confederate and Neo-Confederate Reader, right. uh, which you may be familiar with, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. And he has is, is a crusader for bringing documents of the era to the public, uh, and the Cornerstone speech is probably the best example you could give. Right. Where he goes, and he, he quotes in his book how he goes around the country, asks people in an audience, how many think the war is about slavery? Some hands. Right. How many about states' rights? Lots of hands. Then he reads them things like the Cornerstone speech, and they all have the same response: "We didn't. How come no one taught us this?" And it it I, it, it frustrates him beyond uh, bearing that that people don't know these things. And maybe you're reaching an audience that that may learn this. So how many people read your your blog? Do you have any feedback on that? I don't really know. Um, I know, uh, for example, there's 20,000 followers on Facebook. Those are people who follow just through Facebook and who have bothered to acknowledge that they are fans of it through Facebook. So projecting out of that, it's a pretty good number. But I don't know what the daily ratings are, the, uh, you know, the site meter kinds of stuff. By the way, um, 
not to uh, uh, keep the Times from making any money from subscribers, <laughs> but people who want to follow uh, the series and who are concerned about uh, reaching the 20-article limit can follow it through Facebook. Oh, that is good to know, actually. And so you just go to Facebook and search for disunion, uh, right? Yeah, Civil War, New York Times Civil War, something like that, and uh, and you know every day you'll see the new entry. Wow, that that is good. So with twenty thousand followers, that is an impressive number. When the uh, the followers of Civil War Talk Radio uh, uh, join that, that may you know triple that number overnight. <laughs> uh, uh, or maybe the other way well, around. God willing, I hope so. Uh, we'll see how that, that works. But, uh, I mean, that really does bring bring home, though, an issue. I, I, I've i just finished grading uh, papers for my Civil War class here at East Carolina University, the, the, or the, the recent exam, and most of them seem to have done a good job, but there were a few students who, after a whole semester of hearing uh, and reading documents like the Cornerstone speech, give an interpretation of the Civil War that sounds like they had never been in the classroom, that is, is traditional, and, and not many, I, I'm, I'm happy to say, but, but one or two just won't budge off the dime. Maybe they didn't do any reading or come to class. And the frustration of just changing, opening minds a handful at a time to the possibility of a new interpretation, is, is, is it's slow handwork well, and and you've got you've got the McCormick's reaping machine where I have a, a little hand sickle. Um, I, I hope it's like that. I'm uh, the thing that you know, as someone who is reasonably well read about the war, but not uh, but not but who hadn't been an expert. The thing that surprised me as I really got into it was watching how the mechanisms of secession worked, and that it really was a conspiracy. You know, and that there was a handful of people who. Uh, began working together and communicating with one another and it began in South Carolina and they worked together and it it you know you, you prior to that when you're taught talk about it you have this general idea of the south just sloughing away like you know one large uh, body but in, in fact it really was a conspiracy and uh and it really was about slavery and about the rights to hold slave and expand slaveholding territory and so that when you you know when you read the arguments in South Carolina, when you read the debates in Georgia in um, November of, of uh, 1860, it's it is really kind of astonishing to see the actual conversations and and uh, and to have this different view. And I think people who are just you know people who are not particularly interested in it, who just have that sort of caption view of uh, of the events. Um, you know, just have it fixed in their head that it just kind of happened in this sort of large mechanistic way rather than this this conspiracy. I, I, you, uh, I know you've had uh, Bill Freeling as one of your writers, and he does a great job capturing Amazing. that process in his his books. The uh, 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 historian whose name is eluding me at the moment once said, uh, you can't... Uh, get people to, to you can't drive out a myth by giving people the facts you can only drive out a myth with a better myth and in a sense that, that seems to me what you're doing here by if people have a good story in their mind that it's all about states rights just telling them no you're wrong won't change their minds but giving them the the, the detail the picture the story the, the anecdotes the, the week by week events may actually accomplish that uh, I, 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 I hope so 
yeah, it, it, it gives them, they can still be the smartest person at the cocktail party in terms of the Civil War. Uh, they just now have better, different stories to tell. I think that's right. And there are many that are just astonishing and, and, uh, and, and, and inspire a whole set of thoughts. Uh, I mean, it is, you know, we all know, you know, John Brown's raid freaked out the South. But when you read the debates and you see, um, you know, Henry Benning getting up in, uh, in Milledgeville, Georgia, and saying, you know, uh, uh, the northern agitators are going to come down and uh, our women are going to wish that the mountains will fall on them, you know, after the uprisings. I mean, you get the, uh, you really see how, um, you know, this is another example of a political figure using fear and manipulating fear to reach an outcome that he wanted to reach. And, you know, those examples reverberate through time and and every era. Well, they do. And that's something else that that shows up in the the comments. And, uh, I mean, the Times is a newspaper, not a history journal. Uh, People read it to find out what's going on now. And you get the occasional commenter who says, what's all the Civil War stuff, Uh, which is silly. But the, the... Many of the commenters comment on parallels between what's happening today in American politics and what was happening in 1860 and 61. Do you share that view, and did you intend for the series to evoke that view? I I do not share the view that a lot of people do. Uh, You know, um, that a a lot of them sort of say, oh, you know, look, it's the... you know, it's the Tea Party all over again. I just don't see, it's all too easy, and, and I don't think it's particularly subtle or insightful to make those kinds of broad connections. There are, you know, obviously some echoes that go back and forth. But um, um, what really impresses me are the tactics, um, you know, they, um, uh, you know, where you kind of, um, uh, your use of, Sensationalism, the use of fear, the use uh, you know to manipulate audiences, the kind of um, you know uh, use of momentum to um, build and feed a movement are the things that really sort of impressed me. Well, they, they, certainly they uh, some of those things seem to be uh, eternal in, in not just American politics but uh, human interaction. Sure. Well, I mean, uh, you know, the, if you think about the Tea Party, and, and I'm not trying to single them out in some way, but they had a rapid set of successes, um, you know, and and particularly were able in um, to build on successes by being in a, a caucus in Utah and knocking out the incumbent senator with. Uh, Sharon Angle, I forget all the names and the details, but in the same way, the the South, uh, you know, it was gained all that secession momentum by moving very fast. You know, seven states um, went pretty fast, um, and um, and uh, if they had been able to slow down, I think in some of those states the momentum would have broken. Um, but, I'm gonna. Uh, just step in for yeah. a minute because we need to take another short break, but I want to pick up on that point of the momentum of secession, and we'll do that when we return in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. 
where the world comes to listen and talk. What's missing in your life? Do you feel like you've lost your identity? Are you trying to cope with a loss in your life? Are you trying so hard to be a people pleaser? Stop! Invest some time in Dr. Marla Sloan's program, Mind Over Matters. This program will help you find the answers to these questions and more. Dr. Marla's passion is to help people to be the best they can be. And this program does just that. Tune in to Mind Over Matters with Dr. Marla every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today with Jamie Malinowski. We're talking about the Disunion blog for on the New York Times website. Uh, exclusive online commentary from the Times through Disunion, uh, part of the Opinionator section of the Opinion page. Uh, also available through Facebook. You can follow the postings of the Disunion uh, contributors uh, along with uh, Jamie are numerous other writers, journalists, uh, professors uh, of various fields, all commenting on the events that happened 150 years ago this week or whatever week it is that they're writing and uh, giving a uh, uh, giving a, a contemporary's view of what's happening. Um, the comment we left off with as we ended our last segment was the momentum of secession, which uh, when you follow this week to week, you really get a, a feel for how events move uh, in fits and starts, and then quite suddenly uh, uh, states begin to secede and things happen uh, rapidly, uh, more rapidly than many people expect, confounding the expectations that we'll come up with a compromise. We've always come up with a compromise. 1820, 1850, surely we'll have a compromise of 1860 uh, or 61, yet it doesn't happen. Uh, if uh, why, why wasn't that momentum of secession ever broken, do you suppose? Well, uh, um, it's a complicated answer. In part, it was broken. I mean, when you think that seven states went out between December 20th and, I guess, the first week of February, which is six or seven weeks, and then uh, then there was a plateau where nobody then went out until after Fort Sumter. Um, the, um, you know, the lower south went kind of fast, and that was all deliberate, where um, when you read what the, um, you know, Rhett and the other conspirators were saying, it's like, don't put this up for a vote. You know, let's decide this, you know, in a small group. They, they were very disappointed when Georgia decided to, rather than um, just uh, decide in November... Uh, or December with the assembly, they did, they held a whole separate election and the secession convention. They thought this you know this is now going to be talked to death. Um, they did not want conversation. They did not want public votes and public referenda. They just wanted fast decisions because they had confidence that they could um, uh, push through and uh, and win the votes among the elites that were already in government. And um, and they were they were successful. They, uh, although um, you know, there's been substantial evidence that shows that had they, had there been an honest count in Georgia, 
uh, it, it, Georgia would not have um, that it, 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 Georgia was pretty evenly split, and it's likely that the uh, Union side actually won more delegates, but um, Governor Brown, um, you know, stole the election. Um, but then, you know, in February, um, so you have seven states out, and then again, it's still not till after Sumter, and the critical. You know, one of the critical decisions is Lincoln's decision to uh, call up the militia, and uh, and uh, that really did um, horrify Virginia and Tennessee and North Carolina, and well, those three in particular, um, into joining into joining their southern uh, sisters. Um, but they had by no means been convinced to do that beforehand. No, I think that that period between the uh, uh, the secession of the first seven states and then, then Fort Sumter and the call for the troops really is an interesting time. It does represent the last opportunity to stop things short of a war. Um, Edward Ayers has written about that in, in terms of the uh, events in the Shenandoah Valley. He looks at one community in great detail, how uh, in Upper South, uh, a loyalist part of the Upper South, a very unionist part of the Upper South, uh, handled this, and then how suddenly they switch over right. once Lincoln make, makes the call. And uh, you know, his, it, it, I was reading his book, um, the In the Presence of Mine Enemies. Uh, at the same time, I was looking at your blog and was struck by the similarities in tone, where he does what you're accomplishing using a historian's traditional methods and traditional you know, book between covers and uh, traditional sources and a narrative history, uh, to, but creates this almost suspension of disbelief as you're going, uh, you know, I know that they're going to secede, but as I'm reading, I keep thinking, boy, they're really loyal to the Union. You know, maybe they can find something this time. If I just turn this page, maybe there won't be a war this time, even though, of course, I know there will be. As late uh, as April 4th, uh, Virginia had vote, voted. They voted uh, eighty to fifty, roughly, uh, against secession. Exactly, and 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 you're able to convey that again in in, in real time, plus 150 right. years, uh, week to week to the readers. So for those who don't read uh, a great deal, or even those who do read a great deal about history, it's a different way. The the time dimension is something you can't uh, uh, capture. In, right. In the same way that, but but you present it uh, actually happening. How are you going to continue the series? Do you have an endpoint in mind? I'm personally going to stop uh, my work on it at the end of this month, or at least take a break. Um, mm -hmm. um, uh, it is um, it's more demanding than I had anticipated it <laughs> being, and um, so I need to do some other some different things. But um, and it's also. Uh, uh, and I worry, frankly, about. Uh, I'm very comfortable writing about the politics, uh, but once the armies start getting in the field, and you have to deal with all those dimensions, um, uh, I worry about con properly con conveying it. You know, it just suddenly then becomes a much more complex story than. Um, uh, so I, I'm uh, I'm at least going to take a break, and then we'll see what happens. Do you envision the Times having someone else pick it up at that point? Well, I think the Times are going to continue the series. I don't know if they're going to continue the the uh, this sort of technique that we have. I, I think certainly the individual contributors 
we'll be able to continue to write about um, about things. But I don't know how they're going to, what they've decided to do about um, the sort of week in review uh, part. Hmm. I mean, it does strike me as a very demanding kind of thing to, I, I, as someone who does a weekly uh, program like this, uh, it does take a lot of time to uh, just to read what someone's doing for a week, much less have to write it, would be a... Uh, uh, well, plus you find out all kinds of... I mean, like, you know, there's a, like a, a juicy little anecdote about uh, Robert uh, Toombs and uh, the Georgia senator and uh, Winfield Scott being at a dinner party and getting in an argument, you know? And so somebody, in one, one historian tells that story a certain way, you say, yeah, okay, I want to write about this, uh, but I need a couple more details, and so you scrounge around in a few more books, and you find somebody else, but they tell it a slightly different way. And then you, so you go to a third spot, and that person has it in a whole different year. So it's like, uh, okay, so they, like a whole warning goes by, you know, for the space of about 100 words, and um, uh, so it's, uh, it, it has its aggravations. <laughs> Please tell my editor why why historians take so long to write. Uh, yeah. Boy, that hits it on the head. You you find a detail that you want to use and um, and tracking it down uh, and uh, ideally tracking it down to the the original source uh, and, and it's a verifiable source is the best thing. And uh, and then when you can't find it, the the obligation not to use it is it can be uh, very. Uh, disconcerting, but you're absolutely right. It's easy to to, to spend a, a lot of time on a, a, a short amount of, of space, and you know, and frequently in this program we talk about how much Civil War history is written by people who uh, are not professional historians. Uh, some of whom are retired people uh, or, or people for whom it's a hobby with uh, that they pursue with a great passion. And uh, they may often spend a lot of time tracking down these details, uh, but they may have a different idea of how to go about doing it than a historian would do. And uh, uh, it's it's uh, journalists, in contrast with a, with a deadline to meet, rarely have the, the luxury of doing that at all. And uh, you know, I, I guess they go with what they find. Yeah, and one of the people, I mean, at the beginning, somebody said, well, why are we going to do that this way? Why don't we just, you know, repeat the daily reports from 1860 and 1861? And, um, well, the reality is they're full of mistakes. Uh, not everything is a mistake, mm-hmm. but there's lots and lots and lots of mistakes. Yeah, so then the other absolutely. thing is that there's so much more material comes out later when people write memoirs and... Um, you know, and you discover later letters that they've written, and uh, or that you get an actual look at the documents, and so um, you know the, the sort of character that I play of this uh, the reporter with the best sources in the world really is able to step in and give a much more fuller idea of what people were thinking, and and, and I think it's um, journalism has evolved and changed. So that, uh, you know, if you work at a newspaper or magazine now and there are breaking developments, um, th- there's all these different, you have a crew, a uh, team of reporters working on something, and they're getting a reaction, and somebody's getting the State Department perspective, and somebody's getting the, you know, the Defense Department perspective, and somebody's going getting comments from the Hill, and, you know, a lot of those uh, ideas or perspectives that you had to wait to find in a letter or a memoir uh, are kind of um, pulled out of people uh, 
you know, as you're reporting in real time. So, so, so today's reader expects to find that, uh, yeah. uh, and, and you're able to deliver that. And, and one thing that really struck me, and I'll, I'll close with this thought, was, was how much what you're doing resembles the, the uh, diary of a public man, the, the anonymous 1879 journalism, uh, supposedly from somebody who was witnessing events in Washington. Uh, but I'm going to save that. It'll be the subject of another discussion. In fact, Dan Crofts has written about that book, and we'll talk with him in a few weeks. Uh, unfortunately, today, uh, Jamie, we have run to the end of our hour. Uh, but I know listeners who haven't been following this are going to rush to Facebook or the New York Times website. And, and uh, in a couple, of, couple of weeks, um, my columns are going to be published um, by Byliner.com. It's a new company. It'll either be an e-book or you can get it as a paperback. And so, um, Excellent. So, so people will be able to get it all one sitting. So they can look for it there. Um, if you do go to Facebook, uh, uh, well... In the shameless self-promotion part, I know you drop a line for Civil War Talk Radio. I'll mention your your blog, and we'll we'll see who gets the most friends that way. Uh, but thank you so much for being on the show. It's it's been very interesting. I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. And listeners, thank you as always for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network.